I've become one of those insane people when their kids are grown and they replace them with dogs. So I actually call Betty and the pig, the babies. Every time I'm driving home, I'm saying, the babies. I've completely become insane, so don't judge. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here today, although I had to leave the babies at home. Um, but it's always fun to be here. It's fun to worship and celebrate with you. I tend to lose my voice when I speak a lot, and so I can't sing, so it's a little bit torturous to stand there and watch everybody else, but God bless you for raising your voices. Let's pray. God, thank you for a time to meet with you. Thank you that you are here in the space. Thank you that we get a respite from the busyness of our lives and we can sit in your presence. And I pray that no matter what anybody came in with, that they would go out having heard from you and knowing that you love them today as they are. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So today we're talking about Psalm 4610, where God says, be still and know that I'm God. So we're going to start with an exercise in stillness. If we can do it, we're going to spend 30 seconds together being still. I'm going to time it. So is everybody ready, ready to be still? Can you do this with me? Okay, we're going to be still together. Go. Can you believe it's already July 1st? I mean, is that crazy? Okay, all right, back to it. We're going to be still. God wants us to be still. We're going to spend 30 seconds. And so hot. Can you believe how hot it's been? It's just crazy. All right, sorry. I, I have a hard time. Let's go, 30 seconds. Look, a bird! <laughs> You're not on to me yet. Come on, we've got to do this a little longer. Let's try 30 seconds. 30 seconds being still. Oh, see, I have some, some friends here. They saw a squirrel, birds, squirrels. How many things can interrupt our attempts to be still and to be quiet and to be still and know that God is God? There's just an endless stream. It's amazing. So you get the point. We're going to look at Psalm 4610 today, which in full says, Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. So if you've been around here a little bit this summer, you know that we're talking about verses that confuse people. So they're uh, verses about eternal security or losing your salvation or hell and heaven or sin, like things that are really important and confusing. And you've read these verses maybe all your life and you don't know what they mean and so you just skip over because you're not sure how to figure it out. Those are the verses that we're talking about this summer. But that's not what I'm talking about this summer. I'm talking about be still and know that I am God. And it's not exactly confusing on the surface. But the thing is, sometimes the things that are most damaging to us in looking at Scripture are verses that we think we know everything about. And so it comes to be like, for God so loved the world, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 I got it. Be still and know that I'm God. Yeah, I got that too, even though I can't be still. But I understand the, the principle behind it. I think verse 10 here is that kind of verse where we think we know about it, we think we understand what it is, we may, we may not practice it perfectly, but we don't really need help understanding it. But you're wrong! So... This is what I'm here to do today, is to talk a little deeper about what it means to be still. When I was raised, the church I was raised in said that be still meant like just spend a minute being quiet and trying to listen to the voice of God. And really, for most of my life, a minute was just about all I was able to be quiet. And so that was okay with me, except there's really much more going on here than just be quiet for a minute. There's two things that we need to understand about this verse. The first one is that it's corporate. 
So a lot of the Psalms are individual laments that are people praising God. And this is really about the nation saying, God is our fortress. God is our strength. We can trust him. And then God coming in at the end and saying, know that I'm God. And it was for the whole nation of Israel together to say aloud or to sing aloud during a time of prayer. So we're going to sing it together. Really, you think I'm going to sing a psalm? But we're going to say it together, not the whole thing, but we're going to say it together just like in the old school churches, the liturgical churches where we say scripture. And I think it's really important. This is how the nation of Israel would have been gathered and spoke or sung together about their God. So let's do it this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble with its tumult. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. What this word be still actually means, this is what God is saying to the nation of Israel, be still means so much more than just be quiet a minute. What it's actually like is, you know, over the intercom when something's happening in a big building, may I have your attention, please? And what does everybody do? They stop and say, what's coming next? Or it could be like the military attention. Does any, any military people in here? Can we do this together? One, two, three. Attention! Right? And what do the soldiers do? They stop and say, what's coming? Or my favorite uh, commentator said, it's more like cease and desist, like children fighting, or maybe a group of junior hires who are all going crazy in a classroom. So my son, when he was in seventh grade, he had a teacher who liked to get everybody's attention in the science class whenever it got rowdy, and you know how kids can be. They're throwing papers, and they're screaming, and they're jumping on desks. And he would take a yardstick, and he would whack it on his desk up front. And you know all the kids did this. And then an even better story about this dude is that one time a kid fell asleep. They sat at little tables of three or four, and a kid fell asleep in the class, and he actually jumped up on the desk and landed in front of the sleeping student. And the student was like, okay, I'm awake now. So it's that adrenaline rush. So this is what's happening. God is saying to his people, pay attention. Listen to me. Wake up. This is what God is saying. This is the kind of attention that really captures your attention. And every student and everybody and every soldier stops and says, okay, what's happening next? Now, God had already been clear with Israel what they were supposed to be doing, the kind of people they should be. And what he had said to them in the past and would continue to say in the future is, I want you to be people who would represent me well, be prophets and priests that tell the nations about the one true God. He wanted people who had a heart for those in need. So he wanted Israel to move into places where people needed things. And then third, he wanted a nation that was determined to bless all the families of the earth, not just the Israelites. And this is a point that comes through all the Old Testament. He says in Exodus 22, you shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So this is what he's calling Israel to be, the kind of people who did these things in the world in his name. And mostly Israel failed. This is what you see all the way through, is God jumping up on a table again and saying, hey, pay attention. Hey, Israel, listen to me. Israel, hello. May I have your attention, please? 
And he's trying to return them to this calling to be the people of God. And it's first, again, about what kind of people they should be. It's not primarily and immediately about what they should do because the being comes first. And no matter how many times he had to jump up on the desk or yell into the loudspeaker, may I have your attention, he was patient and he was forgiving and he continued to pursue them and call them back to their original calling. May I have your attention? Trust me, he said. And through the psalm we see, he's not just saying trust me when you have some smaller problems or even just trust me when you have bigger problems. He's actually saying, no, trust me when the mountains are falling into the ocean. Trust me all the time. There is no problem too big. I am here. I am present. I am your fortress. Whatever happens, trust me. But Israel, you know, like some of us, didn't want to trust God. And so here God is saying to them, stop with the military stuff, stop warring, stop the aggression, and return to your calling. This is the calling. Now, I don't know if any of you have thought of this already, but it's possible there's a message today for the church. Possibly, you think? About being the people of God, representing him, trusting him, giving our full attention. I think God is regularly jumping up on desks and pulpits and tables and everyone saying, hello, I've got something for you. Return to being the people I've called you to be. And sometimes we've lost our footing. Not all the time. The church does good things. But sometimes we've lost our footing. Sometimes the church is confused. Sometimes the church forgets what we're supposed to be about. And sometimes the church can look pretty foolish and irrelevant. So I'm gonna take a, we're going to take a look at a classic movie clip. Some of you may recognize it. And we're going to talk about what it means for the church to miss the mark and look a bit foolish. Take a look. Because of copyright restrictions, we trim some content from the sermon. Please visit our website, whchurch.org, where we'll try to post a link to the material that we used. <laughs> I just wanted to show that. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about. No, I'm kidding. So the two important things to notice are, first of all, they were riding pretend horses. Did you see that part at the beginning? And people behind them were putting coconuts together to make hoof noises. So that's one important thing to keep in mind. The second thing is when he says, the Frenchman says to him at the end, you, you are doing knees bent, running about, advancing behaviors. And I, my family uses that phrase through the years whenever we're doing something kind of dumb and pointless. Knees bent, running about, advancing behaviors. So we have something profound from Monty Python this morning because I think sometimes the church engages in knees bent, running about, advancing behaviors. And these soldiers really, you know, they could be a metaphor for the church sometimes. This is fiction, in case you didn't know, that is not a real story of King Arthur. But we can all think of stories where the church did something maybe equally foolish. I have a story from my brother Kurt's Presbyterian church, which will remain nameless, uh, where they had, they had an older pastor who was about to retire, and they got together in the fellowship hall. Do you guys know what a fellowship hall is? Is that a thing? Okay, so they fellowshiped, and it was a hall. So they got together. It was all the adults. They're in a hall. They're having food. They're having an evening together. And this is the activity they engaged in. They all got a piece of construction paper, and they cut out a paper crown. Now, remembering that these are adults. And then they taped the crown together, and they put it on their head. And then someone read out different volunteer roles. So usher, greeter, childcare, choir. And for each one of those roles, you'd be like, yeah, that was me, and then you'd get a star. And so then they stuck the adults. Could I, did I say that? These are adults. So they stuck the stars all over their crowns. 
And then, and the pastor apparently was super excited to get stars, so he ended up with a whole bunch. So here's what happened at the end. My brother and other, you know, maybe not as wonderful people ended up with like one or two stars on their crown. And then the minister and others ended up with a whole crown full of stars. So it had the end effect of some people feeling ashamed and some people feeling proud, and both of those are things that we're called to avoid. And also, it, the church is right near Detroit, and I'm almost positive there could have been a better use in one of the most poor and painful cities than to get together and make crowns for ourselves and put stars on them. That, to me, is an example of knees bent, running about advancing behavior. Our focus was in the wrong place on that day. Uh, the funny thing is that my brother stayed through it, but I think he actually was so shocked that this was actually happening that he had to keep staying and wondering, is this a Monty Python skit that's going to come to some, some sort of different ending? So we could all tell stories like that. What's happening is sometimes we get so caught up in the values of the world that that's what we start pursuing. In Israel's case, they were caught up in war and aggression, and God is saying, that's not my strategy. All that's going to come to an end. I'm going to melt down those weapons. So I did not call you to pursue my kingdom by waging war. That's not what I'm trying to do. And I think today the church has some tendencies. We don't all make construction paper crowns, but we do things that have very little to do with the kingdom. And I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one is, and you guys know this if you've been at Woodland Hills at all, what is the primary calling of the people of God here today? To love. The primary calling is to love. Well, we're in a very educated society, an enlightenment, post-enlightenment society where it's really about knowledge. And I think sometimes we're more concerned with disseminating knowledge than disseminating love, because which is easier, right? It's easier to tell people stuff than to love them. And so the church has been caught up in saying you have to think right, you have to know all of the answers. Uh, in fact, maybe we'll try to inform you into the kingdom of God, maybe we'll try to judge you, unfortunately, into the kingdom of God. And really the calling is just to love. The Bible doesn't even say love people into the kingdom of God. It just says love people. God takes care of the rest. And so the church has strayed. We're using the strategies of the world by appealing just to this mind thing. And the mind is important. Don't, I have a doctorate. Don't, don't hear me say that it's not important to learn things. The calling of the church is to love. The second thing, and I, and I hope I don't step on toes. Well, actually, I kind of hope I step on toes. So the second thing is that I've been to churches that have a paid person on staff to do wardrobe things with all the people who are going to be singing and on stage. So like if someone shows up with the wrong sort of color thing, or you know, so she would put together what everybody was going to wear on the stage. And then they've had green rooms where people get their hair done and their makeup before they go up on the stage to lead worship. And... First, I would like to say I, I'm fully in favor of considering that for Greg Boyd, that some sort of help with the hair and wardrobe would be fine. Um, but <laughs> kidding, kidding, Greg. This is a small thing, but I think it sends a message about what we really think the church is involved in doing. Whatever we're doing, it has to be polished. It has to look good. It has to be smooth. It has to match. And I just don't think that that's the main thing that we're called to do. I don't even think that that should be maybe a thing that we're paying people to do. Maybe we could just show up in clothes, and even if they're ugly clothes, and we could all talk about Jesus and how we can love people. That's a better use of our time and resources. So 
A lot of the things, or at least some of the things the church engages in could be called knees bent, running about, advancing behaviors, and we aren't always open to God telling us that that is not really what his plan is. That's not how he wants his kingdom to be advanced. But I'm wondering, so we've got Israel, pay attention to me, the church, pay attention to me. What about us as individuals? Has God jumped up on your desk recently? Do you engage in any knees bent, running about, advancing behaviors? Do you listen to God? Do you be still? Do you give him your attention? Because this be still is so epic with God addressing a nation in a loud voice to get their attention. And really, I think we've reduced it a lot of times to where, okay, I'm going to put my cell phone down for a minute, and I'm going to try to be quiet, but then in the middle of the minute, the phone rings, and then we're off, right? It's just like the look, a bird. We've reduced this really epic thing of God saying, I want your attention, to I'll give you 30 seconds if my phone doesn't ring. And that's a problem, because I think God does jump up on our desk, and I think he's regularly saying hello, but we don't want him disrupting the stuff we've already got planned. We don't want to give him our full attention, because we just maybe don't want to hear it, and we feel like things are going okay. But here are a couple of situations, and I think at least you'll see yourself in at least one of them, where I think God is really needs to intervene, and he needs to be listened to. And the first one is maybe you're the type of person whose days kind of look the same every day. You show up at work, you try to get a promotion, you try to get a raise, you do your job, you punch a clock, you take a half hour lunch, and it might be that a major crisis happens one week. So, oh my goodness, there's a major crisis in the IT department and everything blew up and now we all have to work around the clock for three days to get it fixed and this is a big deal and we're talking about it and it's our whole world and we don't even get to take showers. And then a month later, something that was so epic, we don't even remember that it happened. We go to work, we do what needs to be done, we punch out, we go home, we eat dinner, we go to bed, we go back and do the same thing. I call this the everydayness of life. And these are the kind of things that can make us say, is, is this all there is? I love Jesus, but is this all there is? Annie Dillard said, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And we don't want our lives to be mired in everydayness. And no, this isn't all there is, because there's a God who is our fortress, who's in front of us saying, may I have your attention? And here's the cool thing that we haven't really touched on yet. God didn't say to Israel, and he doesn't say to the church, and he doesn't say to you, may I have your attention? Here's a list of stuff I need you to get done today. What the whole psalm is about is about trusting God, and he's our fortress, and he's here for us. So first and foremost, what he's getting your attention for is to remind you that you can trust God. Whatever your situation, however you've screwed up, whatever's happened in your life, God is right there. He wants your attention and he's listening. Yes. So don't pretend like you can just stay in everydayness and God wants you to just go off and do a scary thing. God just wants your attention so he can say, trust me, trust me, trust me. He wants you to trust him with your tasks of love and forgiveness and to remind you that he loves you and forgives you. And for some of you, that's why he's trying to get your attention, to interrupt your everydayness and say, there's more, I'm here with you. The second situation is one that's much more familiar to me. Um, I know some of you as well probably have a different problem, which is that you are so busy running around advancing that you don't ever sit at a desk long enough for God to jump up on it, right? Because you're busy, you got stuff to do. When I was five years old, my dad said to me, hurry up, 
And for whatever reason, I thought that meant forever. I didn't, I didn't know he just meant getting into the store. He actually meant just that. And I took it like, okay, for 50 years, I'm going to hurry up. <laughs> I have always lived life in a hurry. And this is something I'm working on. I want to show you a video of me in the kitchen making bagels. Because of copyright restrictions, we trimmed some content from the sermon. Please visit our website, whchurch.org, where we'll try to post a link to the material that we used. Okay, I'm not kidding you. About a year ago, my husband came and said, hey, I want to show you a video that reminds me of you. And I was like, oh, I wonder which wonderful quality that this video is going to bring out. So I go in and sit down. This is what he shows me. He said, this is exactly what you do in the kitchen. And he's right. This was actually a life-changing thing for me because two years ago, my uh, sister-in-law came for a long weekend to visit and I got the house clean before she came, which is nothing short of a miracle right there. And she came in and we had the house clean and I showed her the house and then we um, decided to make dinner. So we made a pasta salad and I completely destroyed the kitchen. And then we cleaned it up. I had to because I had company. And then the next day we made something else and completely destroyed the kitchen. And then we had to clean it up again. And so on the fourth day I said to her, what, what do you think is going on? I cannot make a meal. I can't pour cereal without completely destroying the kitchen. And she said, well, you're in a hurry all the time, 24-7, you're in a hurry. And she's known me for 100 years and had not mentioned this, probably because she'd never been in my blown-up kitchen for that many days. But I realized this, this is true. I hurry all the time. You cannot clean up the kitchen when you're hurrying all the time. There's a lot of things you can't do when you're hurrying. Take a look at this quote from Herman Hesse. The high value put upon every minute of time the idea of hurry, hurry as the most important objective of living is unquestionably the most dangerous enemy of joy and also of paying attention and also of trust. I don't think you can trust while you're in a hurry. I don't think you can pay attention in a hurry. I don't think you can love in a hurry. I was really surprised when this idea got hold of me, and that was kind of a turning point when I started thinking more about what does it mean to hurry, what does it mean to slow down, what does it mean to pay attention. And I was so surprised that when I decided to slow down and pay attention to God and try to trust him, I had a, a little bit of a crisis because I started to feel really vulnerable. And I remember sitting at Lake Phelan and looking out at the calm lake and thinking, I can, I can do this, I can be calm, I can be at peace. And then I was like, no, I can't because someone might be getting in a car accident right now. And I realized I felt this need to maintain this hypervigilance as though doing that would mean bad things wouldn't happen. And as soon as I let my guard down and said, maybe I'll trust God with the world, it was like, this is scary. How can I do this? Because someone could be getting cancer. Someone could be getting a car accident. It was a terrifying thought. And it's also completely ridiculous because where is God in this? I'm sorry, I cannot pay attention to you because I have all these things to worry about that you may not be paying attention to. And it's keeping me really busy. And also, I'm in a hurry. And all the while, God is very patiently calling for my attention. Think about what it means in your own life when someone pays attention to you, when they dial in, when they look you in the eye, when they're really listening. It is a profound gift. Simone Weil said, Attention is the rarest and purest kind of generosity. And here's the cool thing that happens. So God is asking us to be generous toward him with our attention. 
And when we do that, when we sit with him, when we're generous with our attention, then he helps us to be generous with our attention toward others. So my ability to sit with God and realize he's with me, he's present, helps me sit with others and be with them and be present. And when I try to do that without him, without paying attention to him first, I fail miserably. Oh, look, a bird. But when we can dial in with God, then he helps us dial in with others. And that is really, really important. And it's not like, I don't want you to think I ran through 50 years of my life and never paid attention to God and never talked to him and never did anything. I'm painting kind of a negative picture, and, and I do have my moments. But there's been many times over the years, as all of us who hurry, where we stop and we say, wait, I'm hurrying too much, I need to pay attention to God. And I remember during one of these times when I was in a phase saying, I really want to know what God wants me to do. I really want to pay attention to him. Someone said to me, God has given you enough time to do everything he's asked you to do. And it totally stressed me out. Because what, I th what is the list? He's given me enough time to do what? what? What are the things that shouldn't be on the list? God, here's my list. Which things should I cross off? Which things are important? You've given me enough time. So if I don't have enough time, I wasn't listening to God. I felt completely judged by this thing. But the deal is that this is not a good understanding of God because this makes him out to be a corporate CEO or a general who's given me a job description with a checklist and stuff I had to get done. And this is a very Western view of God, where he's like, you've got your performance review, he's going to give you a raise, he's going to demote you, he's going to promote you, based on whether you're getting all the things done he wants you to do. And by the way, he's going to be really unclear about what are the things he wants you to do. So he wasn't a very good boss in this scenario. It's not a very relational way to view God. He doesn't give us a task list and then tell us what to do and then give us reviews and then make us feel bad. He actually has given us a very different kind of list. And this one is actually written out for us in a little book. And we have enough time to work through all of these things in our lifetime, regardless of what else we're doing with our job or anything else. But they're all things on a list that take you a whole lifetime. Here are the things that I see on this list, among others. We need to forgive even our enemies. We need to be grateful. We need to pray without ceasing, which I read as keeping God constantly in our attention. We need to care for those in need. And the final thing on my list here is one that you probably have heard a whole bunch of times. It might be one of those yeah, yeah verses, but let's look at it without saying yeah, yeah. One of the religious leaders asked Jesus what the most important commandment was. Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And by the way, hurry up and do it. Hurry up. No, that part, I added that part. <laughs> these two commands, love God and love others, sum up all the other commands. So how are we doing at this list? How are we doing at loving God and loving others, forgiving, being grateful, praying, caring for those in need? In need? I can say for myself, I have not completed this list, but this is a list that I'm trying to keep in front of me. Even though I haven't completed this list, God is not mad at me because he is endlessly patient. He's calling for our attention, and he's returning us to who he's called us to be over and over. And his list is not about tasks but it's about the actual meaning of life. And here's how those two things can get conflated. 
Here's a scenario I've seen a lot. We're trying to decide which house to buy, which car to buy, which job to take, which person to date. And we're seeking God for it, and that's not a bad thing. But I think those are also times when God is saying to us, hey, take either of the jobs. What I would like is for you to forgive your dad. What I would like is for you to show compassion to your grouchy neighbor who has a lot of needs. I would like you to trust me regardless of whichever house, whichever city, whatever job. God wants us to be loving and forgiving people, and we can get quite wrapped up in whether God wants us to buy a Hyundai or a Honda. And I think most of the time he's like, don't care, forgive your uncle. This is what he's saying. And we're like, no, 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 you didn't hear the question. I was actually asking about this Hyundai and this Honda. This one's $500 more, but it has heated seats. And he's like, forgive. This is what's going on, is we're asking the wrong questions. And I'm not saying don't ask God's advice on stuff, don't seek him. What I'm saying is he's already given us a to-do list. He's already told us what to do, which is forgive and love and be grateful. And we're like, but which house should I buy? And he keeps saying, no, forgive and love and be grateful. But which car should I buy? But forgive and love and be grateful. Until we've done this list, this one is not all that important, right? This is what we need to do, forgive and love. God is calling us to be something. And that being is forged in our connection with him. This is why he jumps on the desk. He wants us to be something and that is what's needed there is that connection. But really we want to do stuff, right? We want a list of stuff that we can check off. I want to check off, I smiled at someone today and I handed out a bottle of water to thirsty people and I wrote a $50 check. Good, I'm such a good person, I did it. I also haven't forgiven and I forgot to love people and all of that. God is saying, connect with me and I will help you be. And these are not things you can do in a hurry. So he's calling for Israel's attention. They say, okay, we're listening. They might have said that. And then he doesn't give them a to-do list. He's saying, remember who I am. Remember what I've called you to be. Trust me. Here's the deal about the whole planet and the whole world and the whole universe. God is the one doing the doing. And he wants us to join him in the doing, but we can't join him in the doing until we get to the being. Because when we try to do things without connecting with him first, they usually go astray. He wants us to connect with him and we can join him in the doing. And we want to do the doing and not do the being. Out of that, being flows the doing. So the hard things we mentioned, as I said, can't be put on a checklist. It's not a list we can hurry through. Has anybody ever tried to hurry through that list and been successful? When you try to hurry through kindness and compassion and love and forgiveness, you usually do the opposite. When you try to hurry and you're driving, you end up yelling at other drivers, right? When you are trying to have a serious conversation with someone and you're in a hurry, you end up not noticing the pain in their eyes and the next thing that they need to say. When you are trying to hurry and you're having a conversation about forgiveness, you cut it short and you miss that last 10% that would really restore the relationship. You can't do these things in a hurry. And the first step for me, and it's been a couple of years, was to slow down and is to slow down and will be to slow down. That is what I carry. And I finally realized that when I was five and my dad said, hurry up, he didn't mean forever. He just meant that day. And I finally figured it out. Here's what I was, I've been watching myself and saying, when am I in a hurry? When am I putting stress on? And the answer was all the time. I realized when I put laundry away, I was actually like breaking a sweat 
because you gotta do it fast. You gotta get it over with. And I was putting dishes away and I would break them. And the amazing thing is when you slow down, those things aren't horrible tasks if we're not in a hurry. Because like, I can have my dogs lick the dishes as I'm unloading them from the dishwasher. <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. Um, it can just become a peaceful activity. I actually timed, because I've been sort of obsessed with this hurry thing. How long does it take me to unload the dishwasher when I'm not hurrying? And it, it takes less than four minutes. So what is it that I thought I was gaining by saving 30 seconds unloading the dishwasher? I was gaining nothing. And this is how everything was, hurry, hurry, hurry. This is my whole family. I was raised in hurry. We're always in a hurry about everything. And it is not a good way to live. And I found that I can put a slowly put a load of laundry away in 10 minutes. Am I gifted? I mean, that's slow. So I'm making progress. It might take me 20 minutes in a bit. <clears throat> you can get a lot of knees bent stuff done in a hurry, but you can't get the important things done. So I'm gonna leave you with six thoughts to ponder. It's a lot of thoughts, just pick one. Pick any of them because we're not in a hurry. So the first one is to remember that the point is for God to get our attention and not to get his. We already have his attention, but we don't think we do because he's not doing what we want him to do all the time. And so we want to jump up on God's desk and say, may I have your attention, please? And he's saying, yeah, I've been here. It's really on you. God is trying to get our attention. So I think that this might mean less talking to God and more listening. The second one is some of you have no choice about whether to be still. Due to disabilities or pain, you are still when you don't want to be still. And that's really difficult. My brother, my older brother, uh, it's a different one than the crown brother. Uh, he is very active. He water skis, he runs marathons, he rides his bike to work. He recently hurt his back and he was in Milwaukee to speak at a conference. And he ended up spending four days in his hotel room unable to move literally. And at this time, I was pondering a lot this passage for this message, and I said it to him, what do you think about this idea that you're being still? And he, the first thing he sent me was a text that said, this is what God keeps saying to him, and it's from 2 Corinthians 4.16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he sent me another really long text, and here's what that text said. I am so used to being active. It was so hard to have 1,100 people at this conference, and I want to talk to them all, and I'm stuck in room 829. I always push through stuff, but here I had no control. If I heard anything, it was that I'm not in control, and to loosen my grip on my plans and embrace what comes. God is present with me in whatever happens, and that's the value of life. I wanted to be out there in the hustle and the bustle of the conference, and I was so determined to get there that I couldn't accept it and embrace a time that could have been about rest and reflection and meditation and listening. I always complain that I don't have enough time for these things, and then when it comes, I don't see it and I fight it. But by the end, I had no choice. Is my inner self being renewed? If my body now continues to fail me, is God enough? Am I as committed to inner self-training and growth as I was to the marathon training? Forced quiet and stillness created an opportunity to hear these words and questions that I would not have had at the conference. I need to loosen my grip on control, live in today's work, and work on my inner self because the outer self is indeed wasting away. And 
this was a few weeks ago, he's been largely immobilized the whole time while they try to figure out what's wrong, and he just found out yesterday that he has two herniated discs and some other serious problems. And so my active brother, who spent his whole life, like me, hurrying and running and jumping and playing, is in this place of complete immobility. And I know that there are people here who've been there and who are there. You know this all too well. You have that story. And what I want you to know is that God can and will and is doing important work in you, even as your outer self is wasting away or struggling. We feel so much better about things when we can say, I chose to be still. Look what I did. I can check it off my list. But when we don't get to choose, when it's forced on us, we fight it, just like my brother Craig says, that he didn't want it. He wanted to be out with people, and it took him like three and a half days to say, there's something here for me. And so I can't enter into your reality, but I understand that it's painful and that it's hard, and God understands far more than I do, and he's doing important work in you. The third one, if you're not still by nature, create discipline around paying attention. And because I've been saying to God, hey, I'm trying to pay attention, he's been extremely patient, and he gets out a bullhorn when he wants me to hear something. So I had about a seven to nine day period where a bunch of stuff kept happening, and I was like, oh, I think God said a thing because he had a bullhorn out. This is, this is what he's, he takes baby steps with us, right? So I'll just share a couple of things that happened. One of them is I was eating lunch with a friend at a restaurant, and I said to her, I just, I'm going to preach at Woodland Hills next month, and I'm just not sure like, if this is what I'm supposed to be doing regularly, and I just, maybe this will be the last time. And so she was just listening to me talk, and then a woman came up to the table, and she was the restaurant manager, and she said, um, I think I know you, and we kind of figured out that she comes to this church, and she'd heard me speak, and so it was like, hey, you know, good to meet you. And then she walked away. And then she came back a little later, and I, I don't know the exact words, but it was something along the lines of, everything you have ever said has changed my life. <laughs> something like that. That might be an exaggeration. Uh, and, then, and then we got a free, she paid for our meal. We got a free meal. So I was like, I'm listening, God, I'm listening. That, so I thought, you know, then you sit and think, like, is there something there for me? And God's like, yes, I'm talking. A couple days later, we take our lift staff out to celebrate the end of the program year, which we always do. And I said, who wants to share? We have some new people on staff. What did you think of the program? What's, what do you, you know, how do you feel about how things went? So they were going around the table sharing, and people, one by one, were saying things along the lines of, you know, I really, I couldn't stand my job, and I felt really alienated, and I wanted to do something different and something that would advance the kingdom. And then all of a sudden, Sandra came up and said, hey, do you want this job? And then the next person came and said, I, I, wanted, I needed a second job, and I wanted it to be something that was meaningful, but it could only be part-time. And then Sandra came and offered me a part-time job. Like, literally everybody was going around saying this, and the last guy, and he just started in March, he said, I was doing a 40-day fast. Like, really? I didn't even know this. He's in his 20s. Who does a 40-day fast in their 20s? Amazing. And he said, I was on day 37, and I felt like God was really saying to me, you need to have a job where you're, you're helping people, where you're doing something that's meaningful. And so he was like, okay, I need to find a job that's meaningful, where I help people, and it pays a lot of money. <laughs> and who doesn't want that? The next day, on day 38, God said, I didn't say you were going to make a lot of money. I just said I want you to have a job that's meaningful and that helps people. And then on day 39... I came to him and I said, you know, we can't pay a lot, but I have something that I think you'd be great at and I'm just wondering if you're interested. 
not even thinking he would be like, and he was like, yes. And I was like, what? I didn't know about the fasting. I didn't know God was telling him this stuff. And it's not because I'm an amazing person. It's because God is amazing. And he kept putting people in a place of saying, hey, I have a job for you. And then I was paying enough attention to say, hey, how about you come work at the lift? And so we have these great people and they're all there because God reached through and said, you need to be here. I wasn't paying attention all the time. I'm trying to pay attention. Baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. The fourth thing, are you a person who's stuck in everydayness? Your day looks like lather, rinse, repeat. Same thing over and over. But you're also fearful of disrupting this pattern because you've kind of got it in hand. You're not really sure you want something messing with your pattern. And this is where trust comes in because when God jumps up on your desk to get your attention, he's not getting your attention, again, to give you a big, long list of tasks. He's getting your attention to say, hey, I love you. I want you to be with me. I want you to trust me. I'm your fortress. I'm your God. I'm here for you no matter what's going on. He's not giving you a list of scary stuff. He's inviting you out of your everyday story and into his life-changing story, and there's nothing to fear there. So let's picture it. You've fallen asleep. Your life is every day. You're bored. Everything's the same. And God wants your attention, and he jumps up on the desk, and what does he say to you? What do you think he's going to say to you? Because this is what's really critical. We think he's going to say something really kind of painful and bad or call us to something painful and bad. So he's going to tell you to quit your job. He's going to tell you to give everything you own away. He's going to tell you to move to a place where you have no friends and where you have to use an outhouse all day, every day. Like, this is what God is going to do. I mean, this is what I was raised with. Like, if you really trust God and you give him your life, he's going to send you to a horrible place. This is not what he's saying. He's saying, lean in. And yes, he's asking you to do something that's terrifying, which is trust him, give him yourself. But it doesn't mean you have to live with an outhouse forever. You can be in God's plan and get a flush toilet. It can all work together. Maybe you like outhouses and then you can get sent there. But it's about loving and forgiving and trusting. That's what he's asking you for. He takes your hand. He asks you to come closer. He tells you not to fear. Five, keep it simple. I play tennis and it used to be that it took 100 years to teach anybody to hit a ball over the net. And then in the 70s, a dude came out with a new way to teach tennis and it was really simple because what he would do is he would hit somebody a ball and then they were supposed to look at it, let it bounce, and then hit it, which seems kind of obvious, but they used to make it much more complicated. So here's what he would do. He would have people say, bounce, hit. Bounce, hit, stare at the ball, bounce, hit, bounce, hit, bounce, hit, bounce, hit. And that was all. And what happened was over the course of one lesson, they could learn what normally took 10 lessons. Bounce, hit, bounce, hit, bounce, hit. And the relationship to what we're talking about today is we can keep it really simple. Love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. So we go through life, bounce, hit, bounce, hit, love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. If we could just do those two things, we are doing big things for God. Love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive, everywhere we go. The last one is to do it together. So this psalm was written to the nation of Israel and the power in a community together, being still and giving God their attention cannot be overstated. So grab your friends and family and pay attention together and then grab them and go out into the world and into the family reunions and everywhere and say, love, forgive, love, forgive, love, forgive. This is why we're here. 
We're disseminating love. We're passing out love today. Love forgive, love forgive. Just keep it simple. When a whole church across a country is doing individual knees-bent behavior and it combines with us as individuals doing knees-bent behavior, you just get a whole lot of people running around banging coconuts together. And we're not getting a whole lot done. That's not the calling. So we need to put our coconuts down and get off our invisible horses and we're going to do another kind of knees-bent behavior. What is the normal posture of knees-bent? Where does that put us? When we bend our knees, it puts us in a position of prayer. So let's bend our knees in prayer. And how much more power is there in that kind of knees-bent behavior? Humility, making ourselves open with God. You can do that kind of knees-bent. We can all do that together. We make God so small. He's like a baby who gets us parking spaces. That's how small we have him sometimes. And this verse, be still and know that I am God, is God saying, may I have your attention? I'm not just a baby who gets you parking spaces. Trust me and join me on this epic journey of trust, of love, of forgiveness, of meaning. Bounce hit, bounce hit, love forgive, love forgive. Let's pray. God, you know every person here. Some here aren't really sure about you and some aren't really sure about themselves. And I just pray that they would leave here knowing that you've loved them and forgiven them no matter what. And I pray that they would leave here with a hope and a vision of how they can go and offer love and forgiveness to others. Help us individually and as a community to put the coconuts down and to get on track and be the people of God in our world. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless. Come for prayer if you need it.